As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, you say that uh, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And so we trust that indeed it is. And so please, I pray, um, illuminate our way by this passage of scripture this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Judges and chapter 3, Old Testament book of Judges chapter 3. I want to read verses 12 through 30. Judges chapter 3, please. This is the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamites, a left-handed man. People of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about a foot and a half. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, the king, commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and he had reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. All our restrooms are now going to be called the closet of the cool chamber. Verse 25. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. We well, had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. Uh, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, uh, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. 
So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And then we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, it's a little known fact that in an ancient Hebrew text, this passage has as its heading, Sabbath school curriculum for middle school boys. Because middle school boys would really, would really get it. They'd really get what we're supposed to get from this passage. Now, it, it, it fits in some way the pattern that we've expected. As we read through the introductions of, of uh, Judges 1 and 2, we realize that we're in a time period in, in the history of ancient Israel where there's going to be a cycle and they'll do evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord will get angry and then the Lord will uh, raise up a, an oppressor to enslave them because that's what sin does, to enslave us, to enslave them and they'll serve that oppressor for a period of time uh, at the end of which the people will, will cry out to the Lord with their misery. Now, we don't always know if it's real repentance or if it's just they're they're miserable under the hand of this oppressor, whichever the Lord responds to them and he responds to them by raising up a deliverer, a judge who comes and defeats the oppressor, frees the people and then the land rests for a certain period of time, period of time while that uh, judge is still uh, alive. Now, but, but this one is rather unexpected. The last judge, the first judge that we had an opportunity to read about, Othniel, was, was exactly what we expected. He was a great guy. Very noble. And short and sweet it was. In like one verse, he is filled with the spirit of the Lord and raises up the army. And the army goes and defeats the enemy. And they have peace for 40 years. We go, that's the way it should be. And then Ehad comes along the scene and we say, he's not at all like the noble Othniel. He's a deceiver. He's trying to trick his way into delivering uh, Israel from their captor. Uh, And he's left-handed. Now, for all you lefties out there, it's okay. But figuratively, both in literature and particularly in the Bible, left-handedness a little bit sinister. Oddly enough, he's a Benjamite, which means son of my right hand. But in, in the scripture, Old Testament, especially, and even in the New, the right hand of God is his strength. It's from where his, his, his deliverance comes, his, 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 his blessings come to us. Uh, the, Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father. The sheep are on the right hand. Everything good is on the right. And we get a lefty and we're going, okay, what's up with this? Why this guy who's left-handed uh, coming in? And it appears that he's, so, he's left-handed because his right hand in some ways is incapacitated. So you could look at him and know he's a lefty even before he throws the first pitch, right? You could tell he's left-handed. He has to be. And so nobody would be afraid of him because he can't wield a weapon. And so there, there he is. And then, then there's this body shaming of King Eglon, right? And they speak unsympathetically about his weight. And you go, what's up with that? Why do we need to know that about that? Says, Wait, and do we really know where, do we really need to know where the dagger ends up? And then the dung? 
up with that? Why do we, why is that here in this particular passage? Why do we really know that in the bathroom scene? You could just see these poor guys. How would they know he was in the bathroom? Don't forget the dung. And then they're kind of kicking stones outside. The, when do we go in? I mean, this is even long for Eglon. And so, do we really need to know that? And all of that. And the Moabites, they weren't even in the land. They were outside the land. And it was the people in the land they were supposed to cast out. And, 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 and yet now the Moabites outside get some guys inside and they conquer Israel. And, and there was a time when the Israelites were going through the land that the Moabites were scared of the Israelites. So now what's changed? Well, God's raised them up. These ones who are once afraid, they don't need to be afraid anymore because God's going to use them to discipline um, his His people. And so how do we understand this? Why do we need this kind of detail? Why doesn't it just say that, that, they, that God raised up the Moabites and some others and, and, and Ehud went in on a white horse and, 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 and killed the king, raised up the army, and they defeated the Moabites and that be that. Why all this detail? Gross detail. Well, I think, as always, we have to hear this event and tell this story just like they would have heard it and, and, and told it. We always ask the question, what does this mean to me? But, and that's a good one. We have to get there. But we really do always have to ask the question, what did it mean to them? A seminary professor used to try to drill into our heads this expression. It can never mean what it never meant. And so we have to think about what did it really mean to them? How would they understand this? How would we must get into their heads? And I think the first thing that we need to do to get into their heads is to realize that they were being oppressed for 18 years. Oppressed for 18, enslaved for 18 years. Ehud was paying tribute to Eglon. That's what he was doing. And to pay tribute is, is to sort of pay protection money. It's kind of like saying, I'll give you this so you won't hurt us. And, and to live in that humiliation. To, to live in that context. Plus, this tribute was no doubt uh, from their flocks and from their fields. And so essentially... They were taking for all these 18 years food out of their children's mouths to increase the size of Eglon. And so here was a guy who would never work in your fields and now he's living high off the hog. Well, not in ancient Israel. So he's living high off the lamb, uh, and, 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 and of your work. And your kids no doubt would be saying, why can't I have that? And in humiliation, as their father, you would have to say, I have to pay it to this king so he doesn't hurt us. And your children say, why don't you protect us? And you... So they're living under this poverty and this thing. Not only that, but they captured the city of the palms. That was Jericho. And Jericho was their best story that they had when they wanted to think of themselves to be safe. They said, look, God conquers for us. And they would tell the story of Jericho and, and how miraculous and wonderful that was and how God came to fight for them. And, and now all of a sudden that's taken too. And they begin to wonder what's really going on in the course of our lives. So, so here they are. And so finally they cry out, uh, to the Lord and God raises up this rescuer. 
who utterly humiliates the one who has them in his grip. On kind of a lighter note or a lighter area of our lives, we love stories like this. Especially in sports. I have a friend who says sports is the most important thing that doesn't matter. <laughs> Pardon for all you who make your living by way of sport. But, uh, but you get, you get the point about that. And so, so, uh, we love, we love it when we beat our rivals badly. I went to a high school called Fort Lauderdale High School. And I moved there when I was 15 years old. And I moved from a, a small town in Pennsylvania where our mascot was the Wolverine. Yeah, that's a mighty thing. And I went to Fort Lauderdale High School and I said, what's the mascot? And they said, we call ourselves the Flying L's. And I went, my Wolverine could take care of that. But then I heard the story, and the story was that there was a football game from Lauderdale High against Stranahan High, which was their rival, and there was a, a, a player who was running down the field to score the winning touchdown, and the announcer said, look at that flying L. And so from then on out, they were known as the flying L's. Why? To remind them that we can fly past anybody. Right? Another thing. Every time the University of Kansas plays the University of Kentucky in basketball, what's in the story? We once scored 150 points against the University of Kentucky. We love telling that story. And it doesn't matter that the team we're playing with now is a different team than played then or playing against a different team. that was. We love to tell this story. Why? We want to say that, that, that we don't really have to worry about this other blue blood. We don't have to worry about this other team because we once scored 150 points against them. We see this uh, politically uh, in, in, in elections. We see it in, at wartime. We saw it in ancient Israel when, when the Pharaoh's army were, was drowned in the sea. There was a great song that Miriam and Moses put together about, about, the, about Pharaoh's army being drowned in the sea. And after, after David beat Goliath, the people would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. We, we love stories like that. After a war, we, we saw it in the Middle East some now decades ago that after Saddam Hussein was, was beaten, whether you thought there was a good war or not, the people took the statue and they knocked it over and they desecrated it. And I'm thinking, don't you have better things to do with your afternoon? I mean, it's just a statue. And they're thinking, you don't understand what they wanted to say that this is never going to happen to us again. We don't ever have to worry about this guy again. And that's the sense of it. That's the sense in this story. That, that, that Eglon was humiliated. The Moabites was, were humiliated in such a way that people would tell this story and they would laugh. And they would say, we don't need to worry about that group uh, anymore uh, at all. Uh, Eglon was a nasty enemy. They had great joy in telling of his defeat. And so they sent in a lefty. They sent in nobody would suspect. And, and, and even if he was frisked, nobody would have ever frisked his right side, where we would keep a dagger we'd pull with his left hand, because nobody would do that. And so he could just put this thing, this dagger that had two sharpened edges, which means he 
knew what he was going to do with it. And no hilt to even keep it from going in and staying in. And, and so they would never even suspect him uh, like that. And so he would go in. The question is, how is he going to get Eglon to, 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 to buy this? Well, he went in. He had the tribute. And then he leaves, but he comes back and he says, I have a secret message from God because he knew that Eglon's ego was as big as his girth. And so he did have a message from God. It was the dagger. So first he put it in because it was hidden on his side and no one would know it. And then it ended up being hidden in Eglon's self-indulgence. So there he was. Now, how would he get out? He left, he locked the doors. He went out the back, if you will. And there was this odor. And so the guards would think he's in the bathroom or the, what did they call it? The, 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 the closet of the cool chamber. There you go. And, 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 and you could just get this sense that they're joking about it. Like, oh, I can't believe he's in there this long. And then finally, they go in, they find him disgraced in every way. And then Ehud gets the army of Israel and they killed 10,000 able-bodied, no problems with anybody's hands except for Ehud's, able-bodied men. And they would love to tell his story because our enemy was defeated in any way. And if, if ever during this 80-year period of rest, the Moabites would start to trash talk and they'd start to say, hey, we're going to make a comeback, uh, they would just simply say, listen, we can defeat you with one arm tied behind our back. And I give them great confidence. So what about for us? Well, we have a bit of a left-handed Messiah. And I snuck onto the scene. Nobody was quite expecting him. Isaiah, which we read this morning, said there was nothing about him that would give him away. And Isaiah also said he, he would be quiet about this. He wouldn't go screaming in the streets. Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he won't break, a burning flax he would not snuff out. He would come in this, this gentleness, this gentle way. Now the demons, they knew what was going on. They saw this and, and you could see the, the battle taking place and they would come against Jesus in various ways. But then it appeared as if they got him and they hung him on a cross and that did them in. Who knew? Well, the Lord knew. Thus, this passage in Colossians 3, which we used this morning as our assurance of forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. The apostle writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together. God made it alive together. I'm sorry, let me read that again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so what the, what the apostle is trying to tell us is, is there's no chance he's going to make a comeback. And we should tell this story about the cross of Jesus in one sense, at least realizing the shame 
the disgrace that this was to the evil one. So we'll never have to worry about him making a comeback, him ever coming back. When he comes to accuse in any particular kind of way, we can just say, well, but don't you remember the cross? How you thought you had him. You never suspected that that was going to be the thing that would do you in. But because you're just as egotistical as Eglon and so self-absorbed that you thought you were safe. You thought you could get away with this and it did you in. And we should at one sense laugh in praise to what has taken place through the cross. He was... Satan was humiliated. And you get the sense that Paul's referring to some kind of triumphing, some kind of parade that would take place where, where a general would be stripped of his medals and stripped of his armor and stripped of his horse and stripped of anything that would make him look powerful or foreboding or formidable at all. And then his men with him would be in this procession following the conquering army. And you'd look at that group of Men from the, the, the defeated army and you would say, there's nothing at all to fear about them. They've been disarmed. They've been stripped. They're humiliated as they walk through our street. We don't have to worry about them anymore. They're done. They've been conquered. And so one pastor, preacher from England, Dick Lucas, puts it like this. He said, No one in town could possibly be ignorant of the victory as hundreds of weary soldiers of war were paraded, straggling behind the conquering army, shamed and exposed to public gaze. Everyone can see that there's nothing to fear from these once proud soldiers. As another commentator put it, as our Lord was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in the apparent weakness, the rulers and authorities imagined They had him at their mercy. They flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all the armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his mighty outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. They're now disabled and dethroned, and, shame, and the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession, the involuntary and impotent confessors of their overcomer's superiority. It's a lot of words. It just means that Jesus won by way of the cross. His enemies would never have thought that would have taken place, nor did anybody else watching. But that was it, you see. And the enemy put to shame. How did he do it? How did did the cross do it? Notice in verse 13 of the Colossians 2 passage, we have, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses. You see, we did evil in the sight of the Lord, just like they did. And sin enslaved us, killed us, really. No hope at all. We were oppressed by sin, you see. And Jesus comes along and frees us. 
And he does that by humiliating the enemy, by tricking the enemy, if you will. It wasn't a trick on his part because he knew exactly all along what he was doing. It had been talked about since Isaiah, at least, but obviously since Genesis 3. And yet here he came, and the evil one fell for it, and Jesus humiliated him. To really get the Ehud Eglon story, you've got to feel their oppression. To sense their joy in telling the story of the humiliation of their captor, you have to feel their oppression. If you don't feel it, it just seems like a waste of time, or it just feels like a bad reaction to something. They shouldn't do that. They shouldn't take glee in that story. But if you knew their oppression, if you felt their humiliation, if you felt their frustration, if you felt the injustice that they felt during their captivity, you would say, you'd love telling that story. You'd pause at different parts and just laugh. Can't really get what Christ did until we feel the oppression of The sin that is upon humanity and the world. The evil that it evokes from us. We we see it in the world how one nation treats another. We see it in the injustice that takes place from one nation to another, one human being to another And even the injustice that we participate in ourselves. We see it in the hatred. Even the hatred we participate in ourselves. We see it in the broken relationships that we know of. The things that we think. The things that we do. The things that we say that breaks relationships and hurts others. We we see that. We see what sin does to us internally in the context of anxieties and fears. and We see what it does to our bodies. We see how it destroys life. We see how it brings death. And, and you, you know, um, just that whole process of aging and death is horrible. So what it does to the image of God in us. And we need to feel that oppression. And, and once we feel it, you see, once we know it, once we see that is the result of this enemy, then we relish in the humiliation of the enemy because what we really want to know is that this enemy can't come back and get us. What we want to know that he's really defeated. What we want to know is that this is the end of it all. And so this passage says, don't worry, he was shamed. Just like Eglon was shamed. Nobody's going to worry about him anymore. Nobody's going to think about Eglon in the history of Israel as some noble statesman, warrior, king. They're going to think of this man who's laying in his well you you know the picture and so they're going to think he's no threat at all anymore to us and we of even Satan and all the evil that we see should realize it's been defeated it can't defeat us 
No matter how hard it attempts in the world in which we live, the evil coming against us. And uh, we don't we don't need to, to give in to it. We don't need to give it our peace. We don't need to give it our joy. We don't need to give it our relationships. We don't need to give it uh, our happiness, any of that. We don't need to give any of that up, even as it comes against us. Why? Because we know it's been defeated. And we can relish in the fact that the enemy has literally been shamed. And he can't come back. And he can't get us. Because we're really forgiven. Look what Jesus did. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, we trespassed. We went where we weren't supposed to go. If you see a no trespassing sign, it says, don't go there. And we did. And we went to a place where God said, don't go. And the, the place where he said, don't go, is don't go there because I'm not there. Don't go there and think you can make your own life without me. Don't go there and think that, 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 that you can do this alone. Don't go there and think that you're the one who defines what good and evil is and you're to live according to that. Don't go there. We went there. So it killed us. Spiritually. And you still go there, but, but we did. And so we were cut off the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were cut off from God. But then God made us alive together with him. How did he do that? He forgave us all our trespasses. How did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. That is, in all the, all the, the, the law that we broke that said you need to live like this in order to be where God is to live with him. And he said, here it is. And this, this, this debt listed out before us. This is what you owe. And we realized that it condemned us because we didn't, couldn't pay it. And thus he set us aside. He nailed it to the cross. He, he canceled it. He paid it. And so it's done. So now the power of the evil one is taken away because his power was his threat. And the threat was, if God ever gets a hold of you, he's going to condemn you and cast you right into hell. And you go, yeah, I know, but. And so, so once we get this, once we understand this, the threat's gone. Rather than run from God, we have to run to him. And even if the evil one comes to him and says, you know, if, if you follow God, your life's going to be miserable because he really doesn't love you. We can say, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean he doesn't love me? Look what he did. I can trust him. You're trying to trick me. You're trying to make, you're trying to get tribute from me. You're trying to make me pay you and impoverish myself. Well, no, because, because I know God, you see. But he does love me. If I follow after him, that's life. Not trespassing. Not trespassing against him, you see. And so he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in the cross. I read earlier this morning this passage from 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. And it begins by talking about the fact that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. And with a bit of tongue in cheek, the Lord is saying, uh, that's my wisdom. 
that's my wisdom. The cross was my wisdom. The cross was the only way that you could be freed from, from the oppression. Uh, and, and, and so I came as this one. You wouldn't have suspected to do it in a way which you wouldn't have expected. But I did it. And the evil one is defeated by my wisdom. And this is my power to free you. And then he goes on at the end of that passage to say, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish uh, in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And he's saying, the world thinks of the church as this inept, impotent, left-handed organization. But you're not. You're the very wisdom and power of God that springs from the wisdom and power of God of the cross. Even though we feel weak, even though socially and politically and otherwise at various times in history, most of them, by the way, we look weak, Don't be fooled. We're the wisdom of God and his power to work in the world that people would know this freedom from the oppressor. Ancient Israel would have loved telling this story. It would have been one that even your mom would let you tell. And you could go into all the detail and you could laugh and hoot it up in the midst of it. Why? Because everybody wanted to say, we scored 150 points against Kentucky. Don't worry about them. Look at that guy fly past the opponent. We don't have to worry about them. The enemy's been defeated. He's been disgraced. There's no way he can rise up out of this rubble. He's done for. Don't give him anything in your life. Don't give him any place in your life. Uh, Follow after the one who's destroyed him. Let's pray. Father, pray for all of us that in your kindness and grace that we would know clearly the wisdom and power of the cross. That we would really know that the evil one has been defeated and that evil cannot overtake us even in the evil world in which we live. Father, our own sin forgiven, the power of that sin over us to condemn us, erased. Please enable us to see it as clearly as as we ought to, to see the enemy really defeated, to see him really shamed, to see him that, that, that he can't rise up and get us, that we really do belong to you, that you really have been victorious, and that we can walk with you, and walking with you is life. So please, I pray, work that, work that in us. Pray particularly for those in our congregation this morning that are suffering in various ways. We know many suffering just emotionally and with anxiety and so forth that you would enable each of us in those situations to know the victory of Christ. In relationships too, Father, we pray that you bring healing to them. 
that we wouldn't succumb to the lies of the enemy, that we would see them as they are just lies, and we would see that um, we needn't follow him, that he holds nothing over us at all. And we pray for those who grieve. I'm thinking of Ron Bodofer's mom passed away recently, and uh, for those who are hurting in various ways. Pray for Debbie Oakleaf as she recovers from surgery. For Dee Blattner, Kim Johnson's mom, as she is probably even now in heart surgery. And uh, pray for Andrew Zook as he's deployed that you would be with him in the Middle East. We give you thanks for working in such a way that we needn't fret evil or evildoers because you have defeated the evil one. Let us see it, God. And let us rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen.